If, uh, if you were here for the last message in our Advent series, and you were here last week for uh, what Neil taught, then today is going to feel a little bit redundant. You're going to think, man, these guys have nothing else to talk about. We've been on the same topic now three times. And, and I was thinking about that a little bit. And, and if, you, if you missed Neil's message, go to redemptionaz.com, select uh, Gilbert Congregation, go back and listen to it. Excellent. Um, but I also was thinking about this this morning and, and, and last night a little bit, and I thought, okay, if God keeps kind of bringing up the same thing, if different guys keep saying the same thing, it could be that God really has something that he wants us to hear. And I think that it, it's important for us, uh, particularly right now in the life of our church, I, I, I'm thrilled to be here this morning, but I'm really excited to be a part of this church. Really excited. I think I think God's doing some incredible things. God is is working in us. God is working through us in our city, in places like Alaska, in places like Ethiopia. Um, God is moving in the hearts of the people of this church to take care of orphans and to care for what else, just to do the things that God calls us to do. And and God is God's blessing. God is is providing. Tim talked about the giving. It's just. Incredible how God is providing for us, and it is kind of a classic human thing when when things start to get pretty easy and start to get pretty good that we could either become maybe kind of cocky or arrogant and think, well, no kidding, God's blessing us. I mean, look at us, right? Or 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 worse, that we would just kind of coast and we would start to take these things for for granted. Um, And I think the reason that why God keeps kind of bringing up the same topic, at least for the past couple weeks, is is this. In Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, God is talking through the prophet Isaiah, and and this is what what God says. We'll put the, the verse up on the screen for you. He says, thus is the one who is high and lifted up. So God is setting himself apart, saying, look, I am not like you. In fact, I am nothing like you. I am high and lifted up. My address, I inhabit eternity. In other words, I cannot be confined. Um, Whose name is holy, totally unique, other than, and God says this, I dwell in the high and holy place. So God through Isaiah is saying, look, you guys need to know that I'm totally different than you. I'm totally other than you. I'm holy. I'm set apart. Where I exist is not where you exist. But then in the next little part, I love this. He says, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. In other words, God's saying, look, I, I, I live in a high, holy place. I inhabit eternity, but also with the one who is broken over their sin, who is repentant, who is contrite, who is humble, who is low. In church, we can be known for a lot of things. We could be known for all the things that we do. We could be known for our worship or the guys who lead us in, in worship. We could be known for um, our programs or our ministries. We could be known for our facilities. We could be known for all these things that we do. But I, our prayer and, and the, the prayer of the, the, the leaders and pastors here is that we would be known for who we are and who we are are people who are brought low by the grace of Jesus Christ, who are broken over our sin. We aim to be humble. We aim to be known as a people who are just head over heels in love with Jesus. And 
what you're going to hear this morning, um, again, might sound very familiar, especially given the past couple weeks, but I think it's just another piece of that puzzle of what God wants us to hear about the kind of people that he wants us to be. I want to share with you some thoughts that I actually heard another pastor lay out a few years ago. So the the thoughts of principles, not uh, original with me, but I'm okay with that because um, what I have learned from this has has been some of and one of the most helpful thoughts and principles and truths um, that I have heard in the past couple years and has helped me personally tremendously. And so... um, it's just something that God's really laid on, on my heart. I've shared this message in 710. 710's a college and young adult ministry that I lead here on Tuesday nights. Um, I shared this message last year at winter camp with our junior high and senior high students. By the way, if you have students or you are the students, you need to make sure you sign up for winter camp. It's at the end of the month. You don't want to miss that. Um, and I believe that no matter what stage of life you are in, that this truth what we're going to look at today from the scriptures is, is a game changer. If you are a student or a young adult, this truth, if applied to your life, will set you on a trajectory for God-honoring, wise, fruitful living. If you're a parent or a grandparent, you certainly can apply this truth to this principle to your life as well. Um, You also can model it or pass it on to your children or grandchildren or even younger people in in this congregation. This principle has helped me to see this area of my life clearer than almost anything else. And, And when you can see something clearly, then you can correctly do something about it. I want to look this morning at what the scriptures say about our appetites, and this is a place in our life that we typically don't pay too much attention to, but how you deal with your appetites has the potential to determine, not just influence, but to determine outcomes in your life. And with your appetites, you can either rule them or they can rule you. And for a Christian who has the Holy Spirit residing in them, you have the potential to rule them. Your appetites will either rule you or be ruled by you. And I don't think we pay a lot of attention to this because we really don't realize how powerful our appetites can be. Your parents are where they are today because of how they manage their appetites. Some of you had parents that were off the job because of an appetite for alcohol or, or, or drugs or maybe a relationship with other people. And, and, and you as a kid, you didn't understand it at the time, but now you look back and you say, oh, there was something that was clearly pulling them away from me. And it was this appetite. For some of you in this room, your deepest pain is not because of a decision that you made, but because of how someone else managed their appetite. That's how powerful appetites can be. I, I, I mentioned um, winter camp a, a second ago, and, and camps and retreats and, and things, these kind of times of spiritual getaway are so important to our culture here. Um, and, and there's always great stories that come out. And, and, and what happens inevitably, if you've ever experienced one of these moments, either at a retreat or a conference or a, a camp yourself, or you go and by the end of the camp, you're all fired up and it's been this real kind of spiritual booster shot. And you go and you and your group of friends or whatever, you're resolved. Uh, you say, okay, the, the things that we were doing before we, we came up here, the places that we were going, the way that we acted, um, that's all going to change. We're, we're not, we're not going to drink that anymore. We're not going to take that anymore. We're not going to go that anymore. We're not going to do that. We're not going to watch that anymore. And then sometimes before you even get home, but certainly when you do get home, there are these things that just creep back in. 
And all the stuff you said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to drink that. I'm not going to be with them. I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to talk like that. I'm not going to act like that. I'm not gonna say. But these appetites creep back in. In the world that I'm in, in, this, in the church world, more leaders flame out or lose influence, not because of bad theology, not because they're not good at what they do anymore, but because they were ruled by their appetites. And your response to your appetite determines the direction and the quality of your life, and they will always be a factor in everything that you do and in every relationship that you have. Now, when somebody starts talking about appetites, you usually put it in the category of like the food category or the sex category, right? But there are several although it was hard for me to think of them outside of those two, but there are several. There is the appetite of progress, right? So progress, you want to get, you want to get better. I want to do more. I want to, uh, I, I want to achieve more, right? So my, my mother-in-law bought me a, a Fitbit thing for Christmas. Anybody on the Fitbit cult? Right, so, um, and I, at first I was like, I don't want one of those things. That's dumb. But then I got in a competition with my wife, and I was winning. And I was like... I like the Fitbit. It's, it's pretty good. I had this appetite for progress. And then football was on all day on um, New Year's Eve, and I've been losing, so I don't care about the Fitbit anymore. But, <laughs> but we have an appetite for progress. We have an appetite for responsibility. You want more on your plate. You want someone to look at you and say, I trust you with this. I'm going to give you this job. You had that job, I'm going to give you more. I'm going to give you more responsibility. We have an appetite for uh, respect. Right? We want someone to look at us and say, uh, I value your opinion. Or to ask you, what would you do if, if you had this situation? And we want respect professionally. We want respect uh, in our relationships. We want someone to say, I, I value what you think about this. We have an appetite for love and acceptance. It's neat how God has created us to be acceptance magnets. And we gravitate towards people who accept us and love us. The people who don't love us and don't accept us. We tend to kind of steer away from them. We have uh, a, a, an appetite for fame and for recognition. We want people to know what we've done. If you're on any kind of social media platform, you've experienced this, right? You take a picture of what you've done. You shoot a video of what you've done. You write a quote about what you've done, and you want somebody to give you the thumbs up on what you've done. That's what you're living for. You just put it out there. You want someone, hey, how come people don't like it? Well, how come more people don't like what I had for lunch? I don't get it, Right? <laughs> In, in, in my house, I've, I've got three kids, uh, two, two girls and a little boy, five, four, and, and two. And the, and the thing I hear the most from my little girls is, watch me, daddy. Watch me, daddy. Watch me, daddy. Watch me, daddy. Watch me do this. Watch me wear this. Watch this. Watch this. Watch this, right? And so I watch and then usually get yelled at my wife because I was supposed to do something about what I was watching them do. Shouldn't have been just watching. But we, but we love that. That still exists today. We, ha we have uh, an appetite to be envied right? It, it, it's kind of rude, but it's weird because it kind of feeds something in us. So somebody looks at you and they're like, why is she with you? Right? I get that a lot. But we, we, <laughs> we kind of we like that. Or how come you got invited? Or how come you got the promotion? Right? We have, an, we have an appetite. We have an appetite for things, right? We talked about this before Christmas, right? Got to have more stuff, need more. Uh, just one more thing. Just one, just one more thing, right? If you own an Apple product, you've experienced this, right? That phone's no good. We got the S now. So, oh, yeah, I got to have that, right? Got to have the next thing. We have all kinds of appetites. And the thing that you need to know about appetites, the good news and the bad news, is that they're never going away. There's three things about appetites. The, the first thing you need to know about appetites is that God created them and sin distorted them. So in Genesis, God 
um, has man and woman there in the garden. The garden is lush. The garden has everything they would ever need or ever want. Gives them food. He gives them a job. He gives them responsibility. There's a place for progress and a place for creativity. There's companionship. There's relationship. There's fellowship with, with God. There's all of these things. And sin or rebellion against God enters in and breaks it all. If you, just, if you use your imagination, you think about the garden, what if sin never entered in? It would have turned into this amazing city where progress and creativity and, and, and problem solving all kind of had to happen and perfect relationships were happening. But God creates these appetites and sin breaks them, sin distorts them. The second thing you need to know about appetites is that appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. Appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. So over the holidays, most of us, we got together with friends and family, and we sat down at the table, big meal, turkey, ham, whatever, all the stuff. And you eat, and you eat, and you eat, and you eat, and then you finally, everybody does the same thing. They push away, like stuffed. Couldn't eat one more thing. Get up from the table, walk into the kitchen, open the fridge. What else we got in there, right? It's, kinda, it's like the, the Chinese food thing, right? You eat, and you're like, oh, I'm 15 minutes later, I'm hungry again. And it's the same as true of sex and progress and recognition and fame and acceptance and all those things. Appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. And the message of the Bible is, is this, and if, and if you're not getting any of this, if none of this is landing, would you just kind of clue in on this right here? But the message of the Bible, the message of the, the gospel is that you can never be satisfied in a person, place, or thing outside of Jesus Christ. But our appetites tell us differently. The third thing you need to know about appetites is that they always whisper now, never later. Appetites always whisper now, never later. You got to have that thing now. But I can't afford it. Shouldn't I save? No, don't save. Well, you gotta use your credit card. You got to buy it now. It's on sale. You got to have it. Somebody else will buy it. And if they have it and you don't have it, you're going to be upset. You better get it now. You're going to need it now. You need to have that relationship now. Yeah, well, they're not really the kind of person I think I should be with. Who cares? They like you. You want to be single forever? You need to be in that relationship now. They'll figure it out later. Appetites always whisper now, never later. They make you trade the ultimate for the immediate. Your appetite will make you trade the ultimate for the immediate. Okay, here's why this matters. Here's why this uh, conversation on appetites matters. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul's talking to the church at Galatia, and he says this. He says, for freedom, Christ has set you free. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, when Paul's talking about freedom, he's not talking about the freedom to do whatever it is that you want to do. Because you don't have to be a Christian, church person, Bible believer, any of that kind of stuff, to know that when you have the freedom to do whatever you want to do, you become miserable. It makes you a slave. Doing whatever it is that you want to do, pursuing your own desire with reckless abandon makes you miserable. It makes you a slave. So the freedom that Paul is talking about is not the freedom to do whatever it is that you want to do, but he's talking about the freedom to do what you ought to do. The freedom that you have in Christ is to finally be free to do 
what you ought to do, what God has created you to do. God is for your freedom. If your idea of God, and I don't know what everybody in the room here believes about God, but if your idea of God is this kind of celestial, manipulative, micromanager, killjoy God, then I don't want anything to do with your God either. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, as you look, is he is this freedom-bringing God. He is a rescuing and restoring God. God is for your freedom. Your appetites can and will make you a slave. And the thing about slaves is that slaves have little to no opportunity, but freedom brings opportunity to be used by God and experience him in an incredible way. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 25 this morning. So if you have a Bible, open to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis is the first book of your, of your Bible. If you don't own a Bible or have a Bible, we're going to put the text up on the screen so that you could track with us. If you don't own a Bible at all, but you'd like one that you could take home and read and bring to church with you, um, you can just head to the Commons, which is the bookstore in the center of our campus, and go in there and tell them you'd like one of the free Bibles, and they'll make sure they outfit you with one. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 5 this morning. We're going to look at two fairly familiar characters, um, a guy named Jacob and a guy named Esau. And with them, we're going to discover a powerful principle that can help us to keep our appetites in check. So Jacob and Esau are our twin brothers, but they're very different in their personality. So Esau is like this hunter, outdoorsman, kind of duck dynasty kind of guy. And Jacob is more of like a interior decorator, cook, kind of a mama's boy, more of the HGTV kind of guy. Esau is the oldest brother. Um, Jacob was the, the heel grabber when he, when he was being born. His name means deceiver. And at the center of the story, at the center of the interaction between Jacob and Esau here in Genesis chapter 25 is something called the birthright. And the birthright was an inheritance. And at, the, at this time in this culture, the eldest son would receive the inheritance. And when you got the inheritance, that meant that you would get uh, twice as much money as your siblings. You also got to become kind of the judge of your family. So there was a lot of power that came with this birthright. And there was also this sense of multi-generational blessing from God. And, and kind of at the center of, of this story with this birthright is the desire of the younger brother to take the birthright from the older brother, which was virtually impossible. We'll pick up in verse 29 of chapter 25. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, so that was kind of his custom there, Esau came in from the field, which was also his custom, and Esau, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, I love, uh, this is how older brothers talk to their younger brother. Let me eat some of that red stew. I'm exhausted. And therefore his name was called Edom. Edom is a word that means red. So uh, Esau was kind of a red-haired, furry guy, and the stew was also red there as well. So he comes in, he says, give me, give me some of that stew. I'm exhausted. Now, this is a very unique circumstance, right? So I don't know if you grew up with brothers or sisters, but older siblings never want anything from their younger siblings. It's always the other way around, right? The younger sibling always wants to go where the older one is going, always wants to do what they're doing, always wants something from them. So there, it's kind of a unique situation here. And when the younger sibling uh, knows this, that he needs to take advantage of the opportunity, Jacob thinks to himself, what's the most valuable thing that Esau has? Esau wants the stew. Jacob thinks, what can I trade him for the stew? Look at verse 31. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. You want this stew? Sell me 
your birthright. Now, this is an outlandish request. I mean, who in their right mind would trade future wealth, future power, future blessing for something as temporary as a bowl of stew? Who would do that? The answer is you and me. Some of you are right now. Some of your parents traded a relationship with you, a relationship with you for a pill or, or a bottle, or a habit for another guy, for another, for another gal, for something that's not even there anymore. They, they traded years with you for something that's, that's a memory. Some of you right now are tearing your families and tearing your future apart because you're trading the immediate for the ultimate. Because your appetite is ruling you. And people do this all the time. I think what God is saying to us through the scripture this morning is I don't want you to do it. Look at verse 32. Esau said, I'm about to die. When guys get hungry, they get pretty extreme. Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is that birthright to me? In the moment here, Esau loses sight of how important the birthright is. And there, and there are studies that, that back this up. Psychologists tell us that when an appetite gets stimulated, when appetite gets accentuated, there are changes, there are physiological changes that happen in your brain. There's something called impact bias. An impact bias takes a simple appetite and it magnifies it out of proportion. So this happens to you every time you go shopping right? Every time you go shopping, uh, it's set up so that there is a, an item is displayed in such a way, there's advertising in such a way that tells you that you have to have this. And if you have this, it will make your life extraordinary. And so whether it's an event, whether it's a thing, even in relationships, this happens all the time, that, that there is a simple appetite that gets magnified out of proportion. This is why you have things like buyer's remorse, right? So you buy the car, you buy the TV, you buy the shoes, you buy whatever the thing is, and you finally get the, the credit card bill, and you're like, wait, wait, what happened? This isn't it, right? You go out to eat, and you're famished. You say, okay, appetizers, bring on the appetizers, bring on the drinks, bring on the soup, the salad, the entrees, dessert, of course we'll have dessert. You bring everything, and you eat, and you eat, and you eat, and then they bring you the bill, which is like the story of everything you've done, and they hand it to you, and you're like, what is this? Who did this? What happened here? This is outlandish, right? Where was I when all this stuff happened? You go through it and you're like, no way did I order that, right? And it's right in front of you. But that's what happens because things are presented to you in such a way that your brain says you have to have this. And so you leverage everything for it. So right now, you're in the afterglow of Christmas. You're looking around at all the junk you bought your kids. You're like, why did we do this? This is ridiculous, right? The other thing that happens in your, in your brain is something called focalism. Focalism is, is when you're, you, your mind focuses on one thing and it blurs out everything else. So you kind of have this tunnel vision. You're myopic. You only see the one thing. For, for some of you ladies, if you think back to your, your first crush, right? And, and he was it. That was it. There was, there was only that one person. I, you had a focalism. It was just that. For, for guys, um, it's like when you buy tires, 
That's the connection. Girls, it's a crush. Guys, it's buying tires. But you, you, every time there's an ad that comes in in the mail for buying tires, you're like, don't throw that away, honey. You got to have that. Got to look at that. You look around at other people's tires, right? My wife thinks I'm nuts. I'll be in the parking lot and I'm like looking at someone's tires. She's like, that's not our car. I'm like, I know. I just got to, I'm really into tires. I got I to gotta check it out. <laughs> so do you understand what happens here? There's actually something physically that happens to you when an appetite is inflamed. Do you see how important it is? That we're able to see this clearly, that we address this, that we consider this and look at this because we could see how dangerous this is in our own lives. Look at verse 33. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Now, if I could go back in time and show up in the story, I'd want to show up right here. And I'd show up and I'd say, hey, Esau, time out, man. I'm from the future. <laughs> Hence the jacket. <laughs> before you do this, before you go through with this, there's some, there's some things I think that are important for you to know. You see, you're going to have 12 sons. And they're all going to have families. And they're going to become a great nation. They're going to be God's chosen people. But they're going to become slaves in Egypt for 400 years, and then God is going to introduce himself to a man named Moses. And when God introduces himself to Moses, he's going to say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. Unless you trade your birthright for a bowl of soup. And then 2,000 years from now, God, through your lineage, will send his son to the people of of earth so that they can be put back together. They can be reconciled and and rescued uh, with God. Do you really want to trade that future for a bowl of stew? And I'd like to think that just the, the knowledge of what God could have done through Esau would have been enough to change his mind and maybe his actions. But, but I wasn't there. And the truth is, in your life, There might not be anybody there when you're faced with these choices. The truth is you have no idea what God might do through you if you will surrender your appetites to him and embrace the freedom, the true freedom that comes from being holy and completely satisfied in Jesus. Don't trade your future for a bowl of stew. Verse 34, this, the story ends. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. And I think this is just such a tragic sentence. Thus Esau despised his birthright. He ate, he drank, and the stew was gone, and the birthright was gone. And his destiny was changed forever because of an appetite that he couldn't harness. Okay, so how do we address this? What do we do about this? The first thing that we need to do is reframe it. Reframe. Look at the bowl of stew, and in light of who God is and what he promises, ask yourself, is this worth it? Reframe it. And in, in, in light of everything that God is and in everything that he promises, ask yourself, do I want to trade the ultimate for the immediate? 
And this is what you need to know about God. God says that he is the God of immeasurably more. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul's talking about him. He says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to the power that's at work with us. James tells us that he is the father that gives good gifts. James chapter 1, verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. 1 Corinthians 2.9, however, as it is written, what no eye has seen, no what ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. Paul says, you have no idea how great it can be. You have no idea. The, 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 the joy and the pleasure and the satisfaction and the life that comes through and with and in Jesus. You have no idea. It's immeasurably more, and you're going to trade it for a bowl of stew. The second thing, after you reframe it, the second thing you do is you refocus. Refocus. This is why our times together on, on Sunday, honestly, are so important, because it is a time for an hour and 15 minutes where we're able to refocus on, on what is true. Refocus. Look to Jesus. He describes himself as, as, as bread, as living water, as life. Be consumed with him and by him, not by your appetites. The, the Puritan writer Walter Marshall said, The more good and beneficial we apprehend God to us, to all eternity, doubtless the more lovely God will be to us. And our affections will be more inflamed towards him. It's seeing God, truly seeing God, delighting uh, in God, desiring God, and ultimately desiring God more than we desire sin. There's a, a, a preacher named Thomas Chalmers, and he has this message called the expulsive power of a new affection. And, and the idea is that your new affection for Christ is so raised that it has this expulsive effect on these smaller, lesser affections for these appetites that will always fail you, that will always let you down. And the way that we stir up those affections is we preach to ourselves. Psalm 103 verse 2 says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. The psalmist writes this to himself. It's like you're reading his journal where he says, bless the Lord, O my soul. Don't forget his benefits. Don't forget his faithfulness. Don't forget how good he is. Don't forget his grace. Don't forget his mercy. Don't forget the joy that I have walking with him. Don't forget the life that I have with him. Don't forget his, his love for me. Don't forget his, his good gifts. You need to preach that to yourself because the reality is you sit under preaching every day. You might think I only hear preaching you know, for 30 or 40 minutes on a Sunday, but the reality is you sit under preaching everywhere you go in every arena of life. And it's a preaching that the world is preaching to you to tell you, you need this. You need to do this. You need to have this. You need to be this. You need to be with them. You need to act like this. You need to say this. You need to wear this. You, you need this. If you want to be satisfied, you want to be fulfilled, you want to have value, you want to mean something, you want to be appreciated, you want to be loved, you want to be accepted, do this, have this, look like this. That's the preaching you sit under every day. And then guys like me or Tim or any of our pastors, we have to beg you, for 30 or 40 minutes on a Sunday to believe this. 
to believe the better news, the good news, the message that the joy you're looking for, the satisfaction you're looking for, the fulfillment you're looking for, it's found in one place. It's found in one person. And it doesn't have the after effects of shame and guilt and embarrassment of chasing those appetites. Preach to yourself. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? <laughs> Rehearse the faithfulness and the goodness of God in your life. There's three kind of primary ways this happens. These are not revolutionary. In fact, if you've been here long enough, you've heard us talk about these ad nauseum. The first is read your Bible. Read your Bible and meditate on it. You're like, oh, meditate. I can't do that. That sounds weird, new age, whatever. I don't, I don't meditate. Do you know how to worry? If you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. Worrying is the same process as meditating. And when you worry, you take a thought or a concept or an idea, often irrational, and you just mull it over and over and over and over and over again in your mind. You extrapolate it out until it's just the, the, the craziest scenario possible. When you meditate, you take a truth or a principle or a reality about God and you do the same thing. You chew on it and chew on it and chew on it and chew on it and chew it and roll it over and over and over and over and over again in your head till it goes from here to here and it comes out of you. Read the Bible, meditate, memorize it. Prayer is the other way. I know every time you talk about prayer, you're like, ah, oh, prayer. Wish I had a better prayer life. Wish I had a better prayer life. Here's a hint. The way to having a better prayer life is not simply saying, I wish I had a better prayer life. The way to have a better prayer life is to actually pray. You think, oh, I know, it's just, so, it's just so difficult. Well, listen, you don't have to, Tim always says this, you don't have to eat the whole elephant at once, right? If you have a place in your life, if you've got a time, like a regular schedule, like so maybe like on your commute to work and you always listen to the same, you know, like talk show or sports radio or whatever, or you go, go and you work out and you've got something that you always listen to or you've got kind of this regular routine. Everybody in here, you have a kind of regular pattern or routine in life. Use that time to have a conversation with God. You say, well, I don't know, what do I do? I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to talk about. Start with this. Start with just saying, thank you. God, thank you that I was able to actually get out of bed this morning. Thank you that I'm, I'm drawing breath right now. Thank you that you hold all of this together. Thank you that I've got gas in the car to get where I'm going. Thank you that I've got kids to drop off at school. Thank you. Just thank you. You spend your time, 15 minutes, whatever, and you're, all you're doing is you're just saying thank you. You're just saying thank you. The one another's is another way we do this. Brian mentioned his, his small group, his community. If, you, if you're not yet in a redemption community or a small group or you don't have people in your life that function like that, the one another's is a way that we see God. And, and, and if you're not serving somewhere, I'll, I'll tell you what, you want to focus on Christ, serve somebody who has less than you. 
You want to take the focus off of you and, put, and, and have a, a right picture of who Jesus is? There is nothing that makes it more crystal clear than self-sacrificial service to someone else. And, what the, and even better, if no one ever knows about it or notices you. That's a way to clearly see Christ. The, the question for all of us this morning, church person, Christian, non-Christian, is what is your bowl of stew right now? What, what's the bowl of stew that you're trading your future or your joy or your freedom in Christ? Is it a habit? An addiction? Is it a, a shortcut you're taking? Are you cutting corners at, at work? Is it a relationship you're involved in that you shouldn't be in? Is it a lie that you're perpetuating that you're hoping nobody ever finds out about? What are you involved in that you really wouldn't want anybody else to know about? What are you trading right now for the freedom that God has for you? What's your bowl of stew? And, and, and if you're here and, and, and you think, man, I could have used this message like 20 years ago because I already traded in my birthright. I already ate the stew and it's gone. I look in my rearview mirror and it's nothing but just a train wreck from relationships to finances to reputation. I want to share something with you that really helped me because that's my my story. I grew up in a home where my my family loved God, had us in church, and when I had the opportunity to exercise freedom... I spared no expense and denied myself nothing. And if there was fun to be had, if there was an experience to have, there was an event to go to, if there was something to drink, something to take, uh, something, I chased it with reckless abandon and ruined relationships, reputation, finances. And then years later, God in his mercy saves me, and I look back at all that, and I was like, man, that's a mountain of regret. Someone shared this with me. It's from the book of Joel. And Joel was a prophet that God spoke to and said, I want you to talk to my people about the promise of restoration. And Joel, in, in chapter 2, he's calling the people of Judah and Jerusalem to lament and to return to God during this time of national calamity, including this infestation of locusts, which destroyed all the grain and all the wine. And God speaks through Joel In chapter 2, and he says this to his people, he says, The threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with the new wine and oil, and then I will make up to you. In other words, I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. God says, You will have plenty to eat. And be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And then my people will never be put to shame. And so if you sit here this morning and you sit under just this mountain of shame and guilt and embarrassment because you and me, like Esau, traded this freedom in Christ, this life with Christ, this joy in Christ for a bowl of stew, for an appetite that just ran wild. 
know this morning that God is a God of restoration. The, the gospel, the good news that we are centered on, that we preach, that we love, that we celebrate, breaks the curse of generational sin. If you say, man, my appetite is just a thing that's been in my family. My dad had an appetite he couldn't handle. His dad had an appetite he couldn't handle. It's just one of those things. It's just in my family. But the gospel breaks that curse of generational sin. Jesus is a life bringer. He creates beauty from dust and ashes. He resurrects corpses. He breathes life into dry bones. He breaks up stony hearts. He sets captives free. And the message for you and for me, church, is that we would look to him, that we would call out to him, that we would be satisfied in him, and that we would walk in, that we would live in, that we would breathe in and breathe out the truth that our God is great. Our God is glorious, our God is gracious, our God is good, that he is better. Church, if we're going to be known for anything, let's be known as a people who believe that, as a people who are centered on that, as a people who celebrate that, as a people who carry that out. Let's pray. God, thank you for... um, God, I thank you for your word this morning. God, I thank you for this story of Jacob and Esau. It's, um, it's a message of mercy. God, it's like, a, it's like a lifeline to us that you would once again warn us, remind us, encourage us. God, woo us to you. And God, I pray... Um, that our affection for you would be stirred up in such a way that, God, when these appetites are inflamed, when these things come along, God, that we would be able to clearly see them for what they are. God, that the lies of the the world and that the lies of the evil one would be clearly exposed, God, in the light of, of the truth of who you are, in the light of the good news of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would be a people who... Um, have an appetite for you that's far greater than an appetite for lesser, smaller things. God, I do pray for the person in the room um, this morning who feels like they've wasted it, that they traded and that the birthright is gone and now, God, they just feel like there's nothing but a wreck in their life. And God, I pray today that they would know the message of Jesus Christ, who came to seek and to save that which is lost, who came to do what we could never do, to reconcile, to restore, to put us back together with God. God, I pray today might be a day of salvation for them. God, a day of restoration and rescue for them. God, we um, we love the truth of who you are. It's the only truth in our life that matters. It's the truth that defines us, God. And now it's the truth that we sing about and celebrate. So, God, as we stand and we sing, God, um, we're reminded of how much you love us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.